Hello, everyone. Welcome to Alpha Bunga Bunga, the global politics podcast at the end of the end of history. My name is Alex Hochuli. I'm in Sao Paulo, Brazil. We're coming to you from the past, from the dark days of 2020. We're recording this on the 10th of December. Um, this is the three articles in which we discuss, uh, well, we discuss three articles, but they're timeless, timeless issues, uh, which will still definitely be relevant uh, in early January when you're hearing this. So as I said, I'm Alex uh, and I'm here with Phil and George who are in the UK. That's, hey, that's accurate. But are, <laughs> will we be in the UK good, in 2021? Now, well, answer probably is yes as well. <laughs> in the early um, 20, yeah, probably um, still in the same flat actually. So, yeah, yeah. all that Locked, to look forward to. Down, yeah. yeah. So, uh, as uh, regular listeners will know, three articles a bit of show and tell. We each bring an article to discuss, and then we discuss it straightforward. Um, and our issues today are the radical left, Uber and elite overproduction. Um, and so we're going to start there. That's Phil's article, and I'll hand over to him to introduce it. Yeah, so this is an article by the FT columnist Jan and Ganesh, and it was published on the 1st of December in the Financial Times, 1st of December 2020, and it's called The Real Class War is Within the Rich. And essentially, it's um, Jan and Ganesh taking on um, Peter Turchin's theory of elite overproduction. So I imagine Listeners have come across Peter Turchin and indeed uh, listeners have asked us to do um, episodes on Peter Turchin's ideas, and I'm sure we will in due course. Um, so, and this is uh, Garnish's take on it, essentially. Um, so the basic, I mean, the basic dynamic is, or the basic kind of thesis of Turchin's idea, or at least the part of it that has been kind of most, um, has been taken up most widely in public debate, is this notion that we've produced more um, more kind of educated and privileged people then can be absorbed within the social systems that we have in the West at the moment. And it is this that is causing all of our political turmoil and upheaval by these uh, overeducated um, people who feel excluded from the kinds of status and privileges and um, salaries that should be their due um, in among the kind of professional middle classes and elites, and they're squeezed out of all of those benefits simply because society isn't able to absorb them. So, um, you know, I mean, and I think he presents, I mean, you know, for those of our listeners who are interested in it, I think he presents, you know, the he kind of um, presents the work fairly straightforwardly. Um, but he takes it, he, you know, he makes some interesting kind of observations along the way in making it, you know, and he main, makes the point that um, the complexity of the um, the various kind of political upheavals that we've seen over recent times, it is never simply a case of um, the poor kind of working class um, and a revolt against the elite. That um, you would never have uh, that Brexit famously would not have been kind of sufficient if it had just been relying on the working class. There were also plenty of um, wealthy older generations who also supported Brexit, and. So Similarly, the US, that it wasn't just um, you know, the notorious kind of uh, Rust Belt vote that switched to Trump, but also that he had wealthy backers. Um, and the conclusion that, Ga you know, that Ganesh draws um, to, so I mean, you know, there's, there's, uh, this points about Brexit and Trump, I think, can be qualified. But the most important thing, the conclusion that he draws is the fact that um, the real problem here is not so much for um, the liberal elite, as it were, um, because eventually he says he suggests that the liberal, as he calls it, the academic industrial complex will um, get trimmed down and so won't be producing elites at that pace. 
he thinks that the real problem rather of the of, or the real uh, the problem that Turchin's analysis points us towards is more for the populists rather than for the centrist liberals. And the problem is that it will be impossible to sustain their alliance, essentially. Um, the alliance between um, working class voters who want kind of um, significant economic investment and spending that will um, boost their position and the wealthy backers of populist projects who want to want to continue kind of who have an interest in austerity um, and have vastly different economic interests from the um, uh, poor working classes in marginal in marginal areas and this is the essential argument and I think it's plausible I mean I think it is um, something mm. that is too easy easy to overlook in the clash between liberals and populists is the fact that the populist alliance itself is um, deeply unstable and this is evident in President Donald Trump, who Garnish makes the point, he ruled for the rich. Um, nothing that he, you know, he kind of, there were cultural sops for the poor, for his poor working class blue collar vote. Um, but essentially the policies, the economic policies that he delivered were for the rich. And that yeah. this is essentially unsustainable. I, I don't, I don't agree. I think he gets it back to front. I think there's, there's definitely something in the elite overproduction thesis, this idea that you would have then competition often quite intense at all levels of the elite. Um, but what he doesn't really look at in this in this article is that there's also a risk of dropping out of the bottom of the elite. And this, so he applies it to Brexit, but it, I think it explains more about Remain than about Leave. It explains more about left populism than about Trump or, or Johnson, because it's precisely the... Um, the unsuccessful overproduced elites or the the um, centers for example in the in the UK where elites or those in in process of being produced as such cluster London remain central Oxford Cambridge also remain hot spots um so it's it's actually the rather than looking for the um, overproduced elites in in asset rich Hampshire instead it's the unsuccessful or the uh, intensity or the those who are in the process of competition within the the progressive managerial class who are um whose political outlook is explained by this um, sociological development yeah i mean yeah i I mean i I think you could turn it around and i think also that's why precisely because they're so squeezed is why they cling so tightly to the cultural symbols of status, which is um, cosmopolitanism, easy access to continental Europe, um, the kind of the, um, you know, kind of being able to get a book an Airbnb in a hipster quarter of a European city. Um, this kind of thing matters to them so much more precisely because they are so squeezed. I think that's right. I mean, there's obviously a generational aspect to it there because the the kind of, you know, well-off middle class, your typical like populist, like well-off middle class kind of populist but who is a cultural outsider right that's the kind of with the person that we're we're talking about here um who because i think that the contradiction that phil mentioned that you know ganesh mentions between the working maybe it's a part of the working class which is the base of the populace and the elite backers there's another element which is more important than the elite backers which is um the kind of middle class base of 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 populace which is precisely though the kind of um, maybe petty bourgeois who maybe does who are relatively well off who might be asset rich because they might own a home, um, which uh, which sets them apart from kind of let's say uh, millennial graduates who who don't have that assets. But you know the millennial graduate will have a degree, whereas uh, you know the the kind of um, 
you know, petty bourgeois person with a who owns a home uh, doesn't have that. And I think so that that plays out kind of in a, in a slightly different way, right? Um, yeah, no, I think I think it's a that's a good point, and I think the I think it's an interesting article. I mean, I I just think that the the it's it's revealing the conclusions that the um, that this specific journalist, you know, working at this paper, it's hardly surprising, draws from it, and that is a an important distinction between the cultural outsider um, who probably feels some resentment towards the metropolitan elite, but you know, traditional you know, Tory um, in the, in the British context and, you know, probably lives in the, in the South. Um, and the, exactly as you said, the, the overproduced elite who are the, who I tend to be younger, um, often, you know, quite highly credentialized through the education system. Um, and they have a much greater experience of precarity and um, of, you know, probably struggling to um, find the job that they think is is appropriate to the level of of education that they've received um various challenges probably around around housing as well if they're in london um that was almost certain so i think it's you know i guess the question is where are the elites being produced and through which mechanisms and then what happens to the overproduced elites and i see that definitely as a as a, a much closer connection to left populism and remain in, in the British context than, um, than leave or, or the Tories or, or Trump. Yeah, indeed. I mean, I, I find J- Janan Ganesh obnoxious. Um, he's like the a caricature of the economist in being uh, technocratic, snooty, um, faux profound, but actually fairly trite and, and basic. Um, and I, there's just some things which annoyed me. There was like the fact that he, he you know, he argues that there's not enough white, white workers um, to really sustain Brexit. That's why you needed the middle classes. And it's like, it's just so indicative of a vision um, of a kind of real bourgeois vision of society in which basically everyone's middle class, that at least 50% of the population from the, let's say the 25th to the 75th percentile is middle class. And that's the majority of people. And so, and therefore the, the, the working class is like this little rump minority. And I think like that, I think he kind of gives, gives away a little bit um, his perspective on things, but that isn't uh, that necessary. That isn't necessary. Turchin's um, yeah. perspective. Um, yeah. It's in- interesting to see, see his reading. One, one other thing that I think is drawn out a little bit, but, um because as, as i said it's 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 interesting i wouldn't you know i don't agree with it but i wouldn't dismiss it that the what are some of the consequences of of elite overproduction um you know the narcissism of small differences and the intense inward looking like there's there's a sociological mechanism here which could lead to political conflict being actually quite um yeah quite inward looking rather than trying to reach beyond that group and trying to mobilize larger groups of people instead there's there's political routes through which the essentially economic uh, like uh, labor market and social status competition between these elites is is being played out yeah no absolutely um so maybe we should move on to the next one, um, which is mine on Uber and Uber's failed model. So this is actually, um, this feels like I've been really lazy, but it's a tweet rather than an article. Um, but it's a tweet which has been summed up uh, on the author's blog, which is Corey Doctorow, who's a blogger, uh, is the editor of Boing Boing and is an advocate of uh, various kind of net liberties and so on. Um, Boinger, he- Boinger. 
Yes. Yeah. I'll indeed. repeat that. Boinger, boinger. Oh, no, you didn't need to. Just just once is fine. Thank you. Just one boinger. Um, so he points out what a ridiculous model um, Uber is. Um, that Uber, this is prompted by a news story that Uber has paid to get rid of its self-driving cars. And so the story goes more or less as follows. Um, Uber was massively backed primarily by Saudi money. Um, so the Saudis are trying to diversify away from oil. Um, and so they put a huge amount of money into SoftBank. And SoftBank was this Japanese bank, which is behind WeWork, which is a big scandal this year uh, when that kind of collapsed. Um, and Uber's business model is entirely, you know, the, and, and Dr. O, uh, looks at the kind of documents there and goes, well, you know, their, their kind of um, business plan is entirely hedged around this idea that driverless cars will replace public transit. Uh, and if that happens, you know, then they then they basically have a natural monopoly that they're that they're holding on to. Um, but the problem is that this doesn't actually work because driverless cars are still very, very far away. Um, the AI just isn't there to do it. And I think that it, it's quite telling. Um, one thing which is quoted in one of the articles that he links to. So I'm kind of cheating here because um what I've linked to is a Twitter thread, which contains many other links. <laughs> um, uh, that's how uh, I get us all to discuss several articles at once. Um, but anyway, so one, one of these in one of these articles in uh, in The Verge, um, it quotes an um, AI industry booster saying that rather than building AI to solve the pogo stick problem, the pogo stick problem being um, someone pogoing in the middle of the street. Um, we should partner with the government to ask people to be lawful and con and considerate. Safety isn't just about the quality of the AI technology. So uh, the conclusion being uh, the technology can't be wrong. It's the people who are wrong. So again, driverless cars, great. It works more or less. It works pretty well, actually. We can roll it out. But the problem is that people do stupid things like cross the street, you know, and, and don't advertise their presence to the car. And so people need to behave um, so that the technology works better. Um, I think that's a very telling aspect of, of at least the, the kind of ideological aspect behind um, this economic reality. What's happened now is that Uber has sold off its self-driving car unit at a massive loss, basically paying someone to take it off their hands. Um, and just in, in conclusion, I think uh, it, it's interesting that Dr. O cites uh, a J.K. Galbraith coined term, um, which he calls a bezel, which is when a huckster has made money, but the victim hasn't realized yet. And that's where we are now, basically. Um, Uber has been inflated massively. It ended up having to sell um, sell off this the, the, the thing it was basically banking on. Um, and, uh, and, it, and it does that because it's just a wash with, with so much money, um, in, in this case from, from Saudi money. Yeah. I mean, it's a pretty good, pretty good grift. It's up there with a, with a monorail or a, um, <laughs> or a blood, uh, testing, a, a, a literally <laughs> yeah. physically impossible blood testing system. Um, but yeah, actually the, the Theranos, um, the book by, um, John Carreyrou, Bad Blood is very good. And there's also a podcast on it as well, um, just on the, the grifting angle. But yeah, no, I think the it's a good um, it's a good well, I would say article or something close to an article that you suggested, Alex. The I learned a few things that I didn't know, and one of them which you alluded to was that the conditions for Uber to be profitable are two things. As you, you know, as you said, all public transport is replaced by Uber, and all drivers replaced by AI. So actually, it's not anything close to um what it is at the moment at all it's an entirely different proposition um so it just reveals that uber isn't, isn't 
really ever going to be making any money. It's not a taxi company at the moment. It's just a labor exploitation uh, company. And this, I think, brings out the main point that not to extrapolate just from Uber, but it's an example of capitalism not being progressive. The incentive structure is not there to solve problems technologically. Instead, as you said, it's to change people's behavior or it's, you know, it's not to innovate. Instead, it's to have this um, kind of three card shuffle um, in order to to make money and then get out while the getting's good before uh, people realize that you've just lost a shitload of their investments. Yeah. I mean, I think imagine like you gave like you're the stupidest, most unscientific leftist you could imagine, a huge amount of money to pursue their utopian ambitions. Uh, it would turn out very badly. You can just imagine the kind of social experiments that would that would occur there. And that's basically what happens with Uber. You know, you basically have people just having a complete utopian vision. Literally, um, you have a blueprint of a world of self-driving cars, which looks awesome. And you go, okay, well, let's just invest in that. And we'll, we'll connect the dots. <laughs> we'll connect the dots later. The policy dots, uh, the social dots, the technological dots, even uh, all these things that are, are not yet in place. And I think it, it's telling that tech solutionism uh, is so unmoored from any kind of embedded social perspective that it's, you know, like I'm, we're all, I think, you know, Prometheans pro-technology and would love to see these these things happen but it, it's it's um it's so many shortcuts I think without any engagement with the social reality or an engagement even with with the kind of public public authorities as it is um, that it ends up be, that uber's role ends up being as it can't implement this fancy you know self-driving car solution um, its purpose ends up being merely to wear down labor. Um, to wear down labor rights. Um, and it's doing that, you know, as um, as we've discussed on a recent episode um, about through, through, you know, actually through changing policy and in, in trying to prevent um, its workers being treated as, as employees. Um, and so that's the upshot of all of this. Um, anyway, so that's, uh, so down with Silicon Valley. So let's move on to the final one, which is Phil's, uh, excuse me, which is George's one uh, about the radical left. Yes. So the radical left is now extinct is the title. So this is um, an article by Oliver Bateman and Malcolm Cheyune, which is in Unheard in November the 27th. Um, and basically this is an analysis of the post Bernie world and its uh, political orphans. Um, and I think it's a, you know, it's an interesting analysis um, and one that I've, you know, I agree with a, a great deal of it because I think their starting point is that left populism has been rejected um, <clears throat> both by the working class that the leftists claim to speak for and also by the centre-left parties um, that the left populists have tried to sell themselves or sell their services to as electorally useful tribunes of the people. Um, so it does raise a question of what what is next for the defeated um, left populists. Will they... Will they starve like um, emperor penguins whose uh, um, uh, parents have, or one of the parents is is by the egg and then the other parent goes to get food. And if the parent that's gone to get food doesn't come back, then the the second parent who's who's minding the, the chicks or the egg or whatever just leaves it. And then you have this uh, orphan penguin going around to all the other penguins saying, can I have some food? And they get told to fuck off. Um, so yeah, I think that's, that's the, that's a, a question that it raises. Um, and I think the, um, all of the signs are, are there for us to make a bit of, a bit of a prediction about some of the directions that the, uh, left populists, um, could, could go. And not least, I think Paul Embry's 
recent book, uh, Despised, which I think is is a, is is well worth a read, even if you may disagree with a great deal of it, um, explains some of the or puts its finger on some of the ways in which there is a deep disconnect between um, the left and the working class, at least in at least in Britain. So yeah, so lots of lots of food for thought on this one. What did you guys uh, make of it? It's on a similar so it's on a similar theme to the one we just discussed about by John and Ganesh, um, because it's talking about how um, conflict is within elite groups um, rather than between um, labor and capital or between um, workers and bosses, but rather within the kind of the middle class milieu um, and the tensions within that. And, you know, I mean, I think that's, uh, you know, so the people who are kind of who've fallen out of this coalition, the radical left, what's going to happen to them? You know, it's a good question. And I think it's probably there is going to be a, a generation of people who are going to be um, deeply embittered by once they realize just how much they have, um, how much they have uh, given in order to support a political project of Keir Starmer in the UK and Biden in the US that will give them nothing at all, not even, will not even kind of give them um, the feeling of kind of cultural belonging or status um, as a compensation. So the thing where I think it falls down, though, is I think it, they underestimate how much um, these, the kind of the woke radical left, how much of these ideas are taken up by the elite as a way of um, organizing themselves um, as a way of um, gouging each other, as a way of competing with each other. So I think it's not simply kind of the um, it's not simply the ideology of the loser faction of the kind of um, you know the highly educated grad student anti far grad student who's now going to fall away. But I think it is also just as much the ideology of the HR department, um, and that this is you know this um, the way of kind of seeing the world as these antagonistic groups kind of dominant, struggling, always kind of struggling for um, favors from people higher up the food chain and always kind of screwing each other over for their kind of brief moment. And it is very much the ideology, I think, of, of, um, of uh, dominant kind of um, dominant groups. I mean, look at the way in which it's been taken over to justify generational turnover at the New York Times. So I think they don't quite that would be my main kind of uh, uh, criticism or um, quarrel with the piece that they don't quite get the way in which the radical woke ideology that they're criticizing, how it works, because I think it goes further than just kind of narrow, um, narrow radical groups who form the kind of um, the shock troops of uh, the protest movement. Yeah. I mean, my, my criticism is that kind of, and I'll address what Phil just said as well, but it's a, it's a little bit snooty um, in the way that it's like, ah, ha, ha, you know, the kind of, yeah, the, the left failed, ha, ha, ha. And it's like, well, there's, an, there's definitely an element of that too. Yeah. Um, and, you know, so, the, so I think the, the, the real important thing here is that capitalism is decreasingly able to incorporate sections of the middle class, which were previously the, the kind of, um, not the standard bearers, but the but yeah, the fundament of basically of of of, of bourgeois society. You know, it, it's not the the high bourgeoisie who do that because it's they're too small, too few in number. You know, you need a, a kind of mass middle class base to kind of sustain the society as it is, and it's losing that. And I think that's very important. Um, it's the only way it's able been able to do that is through asset price inflation, and and therefore you get um, generational inequalities because. 
you get the older middle classes who were able to buy their homes when they were cheaper, um, feeling relatively well off. And so they're still incorporated, but what vast sections of the younger people are excluded. And for all that they're middle class, they're also workers. So I think that, you know, we the the PM the so-called PMC question, which we've discussed on this podcast, is one which I think can't just be like, ah, well, haha, PMC leftist idiots, um, they're gonna lose again. And it's like, well, we're all you realize we're all fucked here. So I mean, uh, I think that the the problem has to be dealt with relatively carefully. The problem is the PMC domination of the left, uh, which is that issue, which means that it's. Uh, concerns um, get uh, ventriloquized as if they were working class concerns. And I think one good thing that they mentioned in the article is the way that, for example, student debt has been become this massive issue, but no one says a thing about payday loan debt, right? Which is like, which people who get their their wages weekly, uh, you know, will have to rely upon um, to make ends meet all the time and, you know, at, at extortionate rates. And that doesn't get discussed. And I think, the, the, the issue there isn't like, uh, you know, payday loans, good issue, um, d- debt relating to higher education, stupid issue. No, yeah. student debt is an issue. Um, the problem is, and as we've discussed yeah. in relation to PMC yeah, before, right. PMC is unable to speak uh, in its in, on behalf of its own interests. So it doesn't say, look, we're middle class, but this is what we want. It, it pretends that it's a universal issue. And that's what, and that's maybe what's at issue there. So it's not like we should dismiss these concerns, think that they're not important, or think the fact that the declining middle class, we should just kind of, it should be an object of, of ridicule. I mean, it's a, it's a real issue in society that needs to be tangled with. Yeah, no, so just a couple of points to, I think, defend the article which I suggested um, to at least a certain extent. The first is that I don't think there's anything wrong with being snooty if you're if you're right. Um, so if they are right, then you know you are, you're allowed some some snootiness um, at certain points in time. The second is I think that the this idea that the um, some of the ideas or some of the um, kind of modes of operation of left populists could end up being taken up by dominant groups um, where there's a particularly close fit. I think this is, um, and Phil, you used the example of the the, the um, MYT. I think this is an, an, an kind of important point. And they gesture towards it, talking about, I think, some of the, the ways in which the... Um, kind of the ways of doing politics, um, for example, in the in the DSA anti-clapping scandal, um, are essentially career training for NGOs or academia. They're, they're kind of tools and tricks of how to um, navigate bureaucracies. But I think this is one of the, um, if you want to kind of say, okay, what's going to happen to this group of, of the radical left or left populists? We're talking about basically Bernie um, or Corbyn supporters. There's a number of kind of, paths that they could take one is this kind of influence on the um the left neoliberals or, or the people in the center of um the the parties through this mechanism of of having their ideas taken up um not in the ways that they would would think but in precisely the ways that you mentioned phil the other is that they could end up getting depressed and and um depoliticized i think there's also probably another escape route in terms of just supplication to the new bosses in town. So, you know, I think Navarra, it makes a certain amount of sense for, for, for them to, to, to see if there is any chance for them to, to work within the, the, the Starmer project, because, you know, that's in their, that's in their interest. That makes, that makes sense for them. So I think this is what I, this is what, yeah, something that I've been thinking about a, a bit recently is what are the, 
what are the potential next steps for this um, for this kind of post in the British context, post Corbyn, in the American context, post Bernie? Um, are you worried for yourself? <laughs> am I worried for myself in what sense? Well, you're part of the post Corbyn movement. What's going to happen to you now? Am I? I mean, I'm not. I'm not. I think the you're like I guess one of the dangers. You're embittered ex momentum. Yeah, you joined. You like joined, you supported you Corbyn. You know, like yeah. all of this is on record, George. You can't go back against it. Our listeners want to know. I thought they do know. I, I thought that I could. Um, I you could go you in could there change the around Brexit with arguments around democracy um, and, <laughs> and convince people and um, and change you know, the I policies thought, of the Labour Party. I thought that I thought there was uh, an, an experiment to be tried. Um, you thought the Labour and Party I learned a lot. democracy. It was a it was a um, it was a it was a, a journey of incredible, you know, self transformation. Um, I learned a lot. You know, <laughs> I developed uh, day on day. You know, just just improving, <laughs> just getting better at, at politics. Um, no, I, th- I mean, and now you're I ready thought, to work in an NGO. You learn yeah. day on day, <laughs> which which I do. <laughs> um, <laughs> So, um, no, I think uh, I, I had a, actually a serious point, but, I'm, you know, it's, it's quite late here, so maybe I didn't quite communicate it um, as clearly as possible. But what is going to... Because I guess you can assume that there's going to be this, this still all of this elite overproduction and there's going to be a lot of, of graduates who are not going to be getting the sorts of jobs or, or standard of living, particularly in metropolitan areas, that they might expect. What, what happened to that group politically well, yeah. if there is no... Um, if there's no left populist project. Well, indeed, I mean, the proletarianization of the middle class, it's not just that, you know, the middle class are kind of downwardly mobile and maybe not able to earn as much as they would, but actual proletarianization um, is underway. And so that's going to remain a a major political question uh, going forward. And I think, yeah. Maybe they'll go fascist finally. Like, you know, they're so obsessed with like racial differences and biological that, differences between people, maybe they'll just turn into fascists. That, that, the well, long-awaited fascist threat will actually turn no, out to be them. No, I think I <laughs> think the if you're looking at the sort of ideas that could appeal to this group, I think it is precisely anti-fascism, um, green supranationalism, anything which essentially internalizes that inability to 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 mobilize the, a majority of people behind Corbyn in the British context, um, and then says, well, we don't need that. How can we get the right policies, our policies into into play without having to go through, you know, through the the racist, fascist, reactionary, um, culturally conservative masses? So that would be my that'd be my prediction. That that assumes that they'll that they won't have any materialist politics. And I think, you know, the the example in kind of the European periphery uh, in the early part of the 2020s. 20, excuse me, 2010s, uh, shows that that's not the case, that there was a materialist politics there. And that's that was kind of the more pure example of left populism, I think, like in Spain, for example. So it, that, that's not to say that the, 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 the politics there is great, but I think resuming the downwardly mobile middle class into just woke politics and all that bullshit uh, misses a lot of a lot else of that that is going on. And that will happen because the prospects for growth are very bad, very limited. And, um, and, and so, you know, I think the, what we're, what we're dealing with now is only a, a foreshadowing of kind of what we're going to have in the future. It's going to get worse. So, 
um, mm. where does the, the proletarianized middle class go? I think, you know, <laughs> Phil's suggestion of fascism isn't completely uh, impossible either. Um, well, but- it was facetious, but I mean, I don't, uh, I don't but- think they're going to jettison their authoritarian instincts, their hostility to mass democracy, um, their hostility to liberty, and their I, racialized view of the world. I think they will keep that and it will probably get that, worse. That's probably, but yeah, but is that, is that the case in Spain? You know, for example, like what you do, where, was there a, a racialized vision of the world? I think, you know, the, the kind of movement of the squares for all its limitations were about materialist politics. It wasn't about like woke brain. No, but that's, out, I mean, that's a long time ago. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't, uh, you know, I wouldn't overestimate how much um, the, you know, I mean, uh, they it was all a clown and move, wasn't it? Jesus, that was Podemos. It was sure, the most kind sure. of grad school political kind of theory was the way in which they organized their politics. No, no, look, there's many. And they were criticism. intersectional, and they were intersectional as well. So I mean, you know, it's not as if um, it's not as if there is some pure kind of form of this that has somehow escaped the depredations of Anglo-American leftism. No, no, but I mean, we, it, these things will be kind of measured out in in, in kind of a, in marginal senses. So I mean, it's not like you know you're either a good materialist or you have like terrible politics. You know, the thing the things are kind of mm. very mixed together. No, they're, they're, they're in, in, like only in your own head does there the really good materialist, i.e., you, and then there's all the bad people out there. You know, I think the the fact is is that politics emerges through through struggle itself you know through through processes so people might be kind of you know have intersectionalist ideas but that they can they can be overtaken um, and overcome by more majoritarian politics um, which 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 itself will be a product of kind of social changes uh, you know um, as, as these changes I'm sure will I'm sure we'll, we'll come back to this across a number of episodes, but I just wanted to, um, I wanted to put this out there as a way to like, you know, get us, get us thinking about this and, um, you know, what, what comes next, um, as you might put it. Okay, good. Uh, that's it for now. Thank you everyone uh, for listening. We'll be back with another three articles, maybe in a month or two's time. Uh, so that's it for now. Thank you again. Bye-bye. You didn't say Happy Christmas, Happy New Year. Why would I? It's because it's coming out in January. Oh, yeah, I forgot. Sorry. Good thing you're not doing this. True. Well, good. Nice one, guys. Mm